Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, this morning we're going to be moving into uh, verses 13 and 17 of chapter 3 of 1 Peter. Uh, this, uh, this, is, this particular section is kind of a, uh, a transition. He's, uh, he's finished, well I guess you could say he's finished. He's finished his, uh, his address on the subject of submission. Uh, he's, he's, he's given us submission within, in, uh, go- to government, uh, in the workplace, in the home. And then just a general submission of, uh, of, uh, of Christians uh, in daily life. And, and he's going to move now into a, to another subject, uh, but it still is kind of how the, the believer who is totally submitted to Christ as Lord conducts himself in a world that may become hostile toward it. Is uh, is kind of the uh, emphasis here. You need to remember, as we move into this, that... At the time of Peter's writing, obviously Peter hasn't been martyred yet. He's still alive. So the, the uh, onslaught of Roman persecution has not begun yet. Um, and in fact, he's going to say later on, you haven't suffered the blood yet. In other words, nobody's killing you, is, is basically what he's telling them. And, and he, but they have suffered under being ostracized by the Jewish part of the community. The Gentile probably as well have been somewhat ostracized, the Jews especially, from family, workplace, they've been cut off, they've been excommunicated from the temple. All of those kinds of things have gone on to them. They've, they've suffered a certain form of non-physical abuse, verbal, uh, mental, um, uh, economic uh, type of abuse. And I suspect uh, that it would be true that of many of the Gentiles in that day too, uh, if you think back to your your own salvation, depending on when that took place, especially if you're a little bit older, you had friends, the people you knew in the workplace, and suddenly your life changed, and they go, what happened to you? You know, How come you don't go out with us anymore? Why don't we get a drink after work anymore? Why don't we go party anymore? Why don't you do those things? And, of course, that opens an opportunity to witness, and, and sometimes you get some verbal abuse back from that. And primarily, that's what he's going to talk about here. As we as we move into this section, and then he's going to say this is then he's also going to tell us how to conduct ourselves when we do that, and and uh, then he's going to move from from this text this morning when we get to verse eighteen and on, uh, he's going to talk even more about persecution. But I think the Holy Spirit had Peter preparing this congregation for what was coming, uh, because it's not too long after Second Peter is written. Uh, that Peter will be martyred, uh, Paul will be martyred, and, uh, uh, and the uh, onslaught of Nero will start to take place. Especially in Rome, it'll, it'll go into the, to the colonies. It especially gets bad under Diocletian and some of the others down the line in the Roman Empire. Uh, but at this time, that hasn't happened yet. This is all a prelude to, to that, I think. And it's basically, as a Christian who is submitted to Christ, this is how we conduct ourselves in a world that becomes hostile to us. So that's what we're going to be looking at as, uh, as, we, move into, uh, as we move into the text this morning. <clears throat> okay, so we're going to look, first of all, at verses 13 and 14, uh, which I kind of titled, Blessing in the Face of Suffering. Uh, and, and Peter begins by saying, And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for, for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their fear and do not be troubled. So we're going to stop there. He begins by saying, 
he basically asks a rhetorical question. He says, who is there that can harm you? If, in other words, if you're God's person, who is there that can harm you? Uh, we, could, uh, we could look to Paul, who kind of says the same thing. He says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Uh, that's, that's kind of the idea here. I think it applies primarily to your status as a believer and, and your status in salvation. Obviously, they can do physical harm to you. Uh, but, uh, but the fact of the matter is they can't do spiritual harm to you. They can't drag you into the pit of hell, uh, in other words. Uh, you, you are secure in Christ. And nothing, therefore, nothing, therefore, can really uh, be against us. Uh, the, the 16th century reformer, John Knott, is the guy who wrote, and you've probably heard this before. I've heard it said many times, but never they quote the right source. But this is who it came from, John Knox. He says, with God on our side, man is always in the majority. Now that's, that's the point. The believer is always in the majority because God is on his side. Uh, in the second part of the verse, he says, if you prove zealous for, for what is good, or for good, in this place it says good works, or yeah, for what is good, later on it says works. Here, here it doesn't say that. It says, for what is good. Good is a term that has, uh, that speaks of a general life characteristic. Uh, one of being generous, uh, uh, expressing kindness, unselfishness, thoughtfulness to others. That's, that's the idea behind this. Someone who cares about people. That's one way you could just put it. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5, 5 and 6. <clears throat> the author writes, Make sure that your way of life is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we, uh, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Uh, that's, that's, that's what he's expressing here. The kind of life that reflects the face of the gospel to men. This is, this is what, what, uh, uh, Peter is, uh, uh, expecting of us here and what the, what, what he is, he is calling upon us to do. Romans chapter 12, verses 20 and 21, he tells us, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in, in, <clears throat> for in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. That's, uh, that's the other concept. Kind of hard sometimes in our humanity to do that. Uh, but nevertheless, that's, that's what God has called us to do. He goes on and he says, he says that you might prove... He says that you can prove that you should uh, that you could that you would you would prove zealous. Uh, prove is to become in this case. The Greek word that's here is not the idea of giving proof or of a testimony or something like that. It's the idea of it's the idea of to become. It points to being above reproach. Is really the idea here. Uh, it's 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 uh, uh, it, it would be well translated to become zealous for. Uh, that's that's the idea. Romans. Chapter 13, <clears throat> Romans chapter 13, verse 3, uh, for rulers are not the cause of fear for God, uh, good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have fear? Uh, do, if do you want to have fear, no fear of authority. Uh, do what is good, and you will have praise of the same. He goes on to say they're ministers for good. In, in that case, the proper role of government. In other words, Philippians two uh, two twenty four, Second Timothy two uh, twenty through twenty two. All talk about this idea of, of becoming above reproach. 
That's that's the goal for every believer, not just the church leadership. It's mandated of them. Uh, but every member of the church should be above reproach. Our, li- our lifestyle, our living should be one that says, this is a Christian. Uh, this is how they live. This is how they conduct themselves. This is how their life is, 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 uh, is maintained. He goes on and he says, it proved to be zealous. Zealous is a, a word that means to be intense and enthusiastic. Uh, that's that's the idea behind this word. It's an intensity of whatever it is you're being zealous about. It's an enthusiasm for whatever it is you're being zealous about. In this case, it's doing the work of God. Uh, you're to be a zealot for God, in other words. Zealot is a word that is uh, used in a number of different ways. It can be a positive. In this case, it's being positive. Uh, we're to be enthusiastic about the cause of Jesus Christ. We're to be enthusiastic about the gospel. We're to be zealous in its proclamation. Those are the ideas here. It's also used as a negative uh, it was a political party in, in Jerusalem, the Zealots. Uh, they, were, they were assassins, in effect. Uh, they, were, they were overthrow the Roman occupation of Israel at all costs. That's, that's really the idea behind it. A modern day, well, not so modern now, it's been a few years ago, but a modern day uh, example of that might have been Menachem Begin. In Israel, Menachem Begin was head of the Ergon, which was uh, basically the counterpart to the PLO. Uh, and and uh, Menachem Begin, at uh, at one point in, in 1947, 48, when uh, I guess it was 48, 47, when they were negotiating the ceasefire in Palestine, was ready to sacrifice the entire nation state of Israel to take Jerusalem. That's zealousness. That's zealousness for a cause. Uh, that's, that's the idea here. In fact, one of the members of Jesus' group was a zealot. Uh, Simon, he was a zealot. He had, been, he had been a member of that party. Matthew 10, 4 speaks, speaks to that. Uh, so this is, this is the idea here. He says that we would have a character, we would have an enthusiasm to have a characteristic of life that makes us zealous for the gospel. That's, that's the idea he's expressing in, in this, in this text. Uh, <clears throat> Peter is calling them to be, be zealous for the nobility that we have in Christ. Uh, Titus, uh, Titus 2.14, it, it, it speaks, because of Christ's redemption, we're to be zealous for good works. Because of what Christ has done on our behalf, that's our motivating factor. We're to be zealous for good works. Well, he said, that's the first part. He says, listen, if you're in Christ, you're a majority. If you're in Christ, what harm can they really do to you? And then he goes on to say, however, there is a but here. There is a however. He says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. That's the first thing he says. If you, however, he's, he says here that there is, there is a time uh, that, uh, that the world is not going to be favorable toward you. There are times when people are not going to, to treat you as you should be, but are going to be hostile toward you, is the idea that he's expressing here. There are going to be those times. After all, 
even though you're doing good, so did Christ. And they killed him. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Matthew 27, 22 through, 30, uh, through 23. Isaiah 53, 9. In fact, note what it says even here in chapter 2 in verses, in verses 21, uh, 21 and... Uh, I got it backwards. Anyway. It says here, it says in 21, he says, for, the, uh, for, for to this you have been called since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Who did no sin nor was any defeat is deceit found in his mouth. Being reviled was not reviling in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. That's, that's the idea he's expressing here. This is, this is the fact of the matter is, even though you live an exemplary, law-abiding life, there may come a time, there may come a time when you would suffer for the sake of righteousness. Now, the way he describes this and the wording that he uses in the Greek is very particular because when he says, this is the exception, that's the word should, this is what it, what it refers to, it should for the sake of righteousness, the verb form speaks of an event that he sees as unlikely, but could happen. It's implied, is the idea here, that it, that it could happen. Contrary to what is expected, which is that you should lead a normal, quiet, peaceful life as a believer in Christ, that doesn't always happen. And he says, it's really the exception. It's not the norm. It's not the everyday. Now, obviously, if you're living in a climate where government has become extremely hostile toward you and is doing everything it can to clamp you down. I guess that's the way I want to put it. Uh, It doesn't seem to be the exception. It seems to be the rule. Uh, But worldwide, it's the exception that he's saying here. It's the exception. And it was at that time, too. And he, when he says, even if, that's, that's another uh, imp- implication of the fact that it's, it's not likely, but it can happen. So he's not saying this is an absolute. He's saying it does happen. That's, that's, that's the idea. It's contrary to what be expected. Uh, the idea is that suffering will happen, or, or not that, uh, uh, is not that suffering will happen, but, it, but it, that it might. Uh, we can think of, Stephen and the apostles, you know, all the apostles, but John were were executed for the faith. And John was exiled to Patmos because God had something for him to do. And so he sent him to an island to write a book called Revelation. Uh, But at any rate, at any rate, uh, he's the only one that wasn't that wasn't martyred. Uh, Many Christians in the early church martyred. And that has continued through the years. It continues today. In fact, I decided to do just a little bit of research on martyrs. And I, and I actually only looked at England uh, in the, in the uh, 15th and 15th from the 1500s to the 1600s, because that was when all the Catholic Protestant conflict was going on in England. And this is what I found, according to Fox's Book of Martyrs. Henry VIII 
from 1530 to 1546, and these were all, these are not everybody that was executed. These are the only ones that were burned at the stake. All these people were burned at the stake for the faith, okay? From, from 1530 to 1546, he burned 63 people. Edward VI, he was kind of light duty in this. From 1550 to 1551, he executed two by burning at the stake. And then we have the champion of it all, Mary I, better known as Bloody Mary. From 1555 to 1558, in three years, she executed, executed by burning 284 people. That's only the one she burned because Bloody Mary had another reputation. She hated the existence of the Bible in the hands of you. And if her guard, if her army, her soldiers caught you with a Bible, they disemboweled you and dipped the Bible in your, in your blood. Uh, some of those Bibles still exist today and are on display. The bottoms of them are all stained in the blood of a martyr. We don't know how many thousands of people she did that to. But she, did, but she burned at the stake 284. Elizabeth I, from, seven, uh, from 1575 to 1593, she, she burned nine people at the stake. And James I, in 1612, right before he authorized the writing of the King James Version of the Bible, executed two by burning. They were all accused of heresy and burned. That's basically, basically what it is. So it does happen. It's not the rule. But, it's the, but it does happen. But he says, then he goes on from this, and he says, he says, you are blessed. He says, if it does happen, you're blessed. And he says, here, is an, here he expresses the motive, not so much the effect. It's not the idea that you are blessed in the sense that, oh, lucky me, I get burned at the stake. It's not that idea. It's not happiness or joy is not the idea here. It's more the motive that you have been privileged to suffer as Christ did for the cause of Christ. That's really the idea of this blessing that he's expressing here. That's, that's, that's the idea. It's, 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 uh, it carries the idea of the privilege of sharing in Christ's suffering. Matthew, Matthew 5. Verses 10 through 12, where Jesus said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And the idea is this isn't anything new. Uh, in fact, you can also cross-reference Revelation 4, because it goes on till the end. Uh, but, he's, but he's basically, uh, Revelation 14, 13, excuse me, not Revelation 4, 13, 14, 14, 13. It, but it, it, uh, uh, it, it is a privilege to share in the suffering of Christ. That's, that's the blessing that he's talking about here. And, uh, uh, and he, he points to where the eternal reward is. It's not the temporal one. And then he says this. He says, And do not fear their fear, and do not be troubled. He basically is quoting from Isaiah chapter 8. Verses 12 through 13, where Isaiah wrote, 
You are not to say it's a conspiracy in regard to all of this people are calling a conspiracy. Interesting comment for our day. Go on the computer and type in conspiracy theories and see what you get. Uh, but at any rate, but at any rate, he says, uh, don't call it a conspiracy. You are not to fear what they fear, and you shall not be troubled. It is Yahweh of hosts whom you shall regard as holy. And he shall be your fear, and he shall be your cause for trembling. And then it goes on to talk about he's a sanctuary and those kind of things. So it's, it's basically quoted from that text. That text in context of Isaiah is speaking about the onslaught of the Assyrian army coming against Israel. And, uh, uh, and th- that was a horrible time. Pastor Steve has mentioned it a couple of times. They, 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 uh, they decimated Israel, surrounded Jerusalem, besieged it for, for a, a lengthy amount of time to the, pla- to the fact that all food supplies had run out. And they even resorted to cannibalism during that time. It was a horrible, horrible time. However, it's also the time of great deliverance because one evening the Assyrians went to bed, 185,000 of them, and the angel of the Lord came by, and they woke up dead. He killed the entire army. He killed the entire army. He left the leadership, and they went home, and eventually uh, they they were executed when they got home. But at any rate... Sometime later, but all of those things happen. That's what that's what he's that's what he's that's the context he's taking it out of, and he's applying it now. Don't when you're in the midst of all of this suffering, don't fear. Now the the way it's written, it, it can be taken either subjectively or objectively. The word fear, because he says not to fear what they their fears. If it's taken subjectively, it doesn't mean to not to be afraid in the same way they're afraid. That's 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 what it would mean if it's taken sub, subjectively. I think it's supposed to be taken objectively. I think it fits the text a little bit better, and especially coming off of the Isaiah passage, because the Isaiah passage is about deliverance, ultimately, is what it's going to be about. And here he, he talks, so if it's taken objectively, it says, do not... Do not be afraid of them or be intimidated by them. That's, that's the idea. Don't let them bring fear upon you. Don't let your fear be caused by them, is, is kind of the idea. Uh, don't, uh, don't fear, is the idea. Uh, scripture tells us that perfect love casts out all fear. And troubled literally means to be shaken or stirred and implies uh, emotional turmoil, which I'm sure persecution will bring about. Basically, he is telling us here, stay firm, stay steady in your faith. Yeah, that's, that's the idea that's, that is being expressed in this, in this passage. In this passage. So as we, as we come to this first passage, what he's telling us is, he's telling us is, first of all, remember who your God is. Remember that, remember that, uh, that he is the one who has called you. He is the one who looks after you. He is the one that protects you. You have no need to fear man. Secondly, he's saying persecution is not the normal everyday thing, but it does happen. It does happen. And when it, and when it happens, and when it does come about, and you should suffer for, uh, for righteousness' sakes, then you are blessed because you have been given the privilege of sharing in Christ's suffering. That's ultimately what he is saying here, and that, that's a blessing. You've been... You've been seen as able to stand the ground is, is kind of the idea and suffer as Christ did. 
And you're not to allow them to cause you to be troubled. You're not to allow the fear to overtake you. That's, that's what he's saying to us here. He's saying, even though you're suffering, there is still blessing in this. And that's, that's, what, the, that's what these first verses are, are pointing to. And then he goes on and he, and he talks about how to defend the faith. Uh, to, and tells us to be prepared to defend the faith in and, and verses 15 and 16. And notice, notice this, it comes right off of even when you're suffering. Even when the suffering does come, even when the persecution does come, he says, but, that's the first thing he says, don't be fearful, don't be troubled, but, that's the next word, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and fear, having a good conscience so that in, so that in the things which they are slanderer, uh, which you are slandered, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. So he, he moves on to this part of the text now, and he says, rather than fear... The believer is to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Proverbs 4.23 Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. The heart is basically seen, I think in our terminology today, we probably would have said the mind. Um, but it, uh, the heart, they're not really talking about the blood pump, uh, but they're talking about your, your emotional, mental structure. That's what's being talked about here. That which drives you, which operates you, which, which causes you to react in the way you react. So more or less, it's talking about the brain. But it's the center. Uh, and it is to be... <laughs> it is to be focused on Christ. It is to recognize His sovereignty. It's to recognize that He is to be the center, the controlling factor in our thinking, in our actions, in our motives. All of, all of those things. So He says to sanctify Him. To sanctify Him. Which means to set Him apart or to consecrate. In this context, it means that Christ is to have the primary place of our adoration and worship. We're not to be we're not to be lost in fear or uh, or uh, being troubled or upset or letting our mind be disturbed. But we are to focus on Jesus Christ. That's where we are to focus. The focus. Uh, the author of Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. That's 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 what he's wanting us to see here. He's to make him the sole focus and aim of our love. Recognize, recognizing that he is the preeminent one. Colossians chapter 1, <coughs> verse 15. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation? For in him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the, be- uh, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, who that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
That's what we are to remember. That's where our focus is to be. Our focus is to be on our Creator, our Savior, the one who is head of the church, the one who is preeminent, the one who all things were created for and will be placed under His authority. That's ultimately the idea. The emphasis is on the word Lord. We're to understand Him as the absolute monarch. That's, that's, that's the idea. Who, who, who is to receive reverence, even in the face of suffering. We're still to worship Him. And then he says, being ready to make a defense. The word defense is the word is where we get the English word apology or apologetics. Now, I remember a long time ago when I first heard that word, I went, why do we apologize for being Christians? Well, that's not what the word means. It means defense. That's what it means. It means to, to have a ready defense for your faith. That's, that's, that's what the word means. Michael uh, has a degree from Talbot Seminary. We will forgive him for that. But, uh, but uh, uh, in, in apologetics. Uh, that's why he went there, because Masters doesn't teach that. But at any rate, as a degree program. And his is in, he's a geologist, so it's in science and religion. Uh, but it's how to, how to speak the gospel into that context. That's, that's what it's about. It's about how to, how to address your faith to others uh, and defend it. And give it a fence for it. That's the idea. That's what apologetics means. Uh, it's, it's, it's used both formally in Acts 25, 16, where you're making an, an argument in the courtroom. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie A Few Good Men, but the whole deal was Tom Cruise never made arguments in the courtroom until that trial. And that was a big deal. He even says, so this is what a courtroom looks like. But, you know, it's, it's, it's that whole, that's whole idea. It's, it's giving it a fence in a courtroom. And, and in Philippians 1.6, it also is being simply able to answer the question when asked by someone else. When someone asks, why are you a Christian? Or how did you become a Christian? Or whatever they ask, it's being able to defend the Christian faith. That's, that's what this is talking about. That's what he's saying. He's saying, he's saying no matter where you are in the course of life, you're, be, you're to be ready to make a defense. And look what he goes on to say, because he doesn't leave any room here. He says, always. In other words, he says, it's to be, you're to be constantly prepared. I really don't like that. There are times I'm not really prepared. But he says, you've got to be constantly prepared. Constantly prepared. Be ready to respond, whether it's formal or informal. It means it means if, it means that if they drag you into court for being a Christian, you got to give a defense for your faith. And in fact, if you look at all the times that Paul was dragged into court, where he was dragged before before anyone, did he defend himself against the charges per se? No, he presented the gospel. That's what he did. Every time he presented his testimony. And that's what it was. It was his testimony of the gospel. How God saved him. And how he can save them. That's, that's ultimately what he did. So that's what it's saying here. He says, whether, it's, whether you're drugged into a courtroom and accused of being a Christian and asked to provide an offense, or the JWs knock on your door. Be able to defend the Christian faith. And everything in between. 
says that everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. That's why we're to live as we do. Account is the word is the word is the word logos, and it simply means word or message. Uh, that's that's the idea here. Uh, you're to express this. You're to be able to express this verbally. You're you're to be able to defend verbally what uh, what has been asked of you and give an answer. And he says, "Ask is in the present tense, which means you're to be ready when asked." You know, the scary thing about that is you never know when you're going to be asked. But you're to be ready. Uh, That's the idea here. In other words, you're to know your faith. You're to know what you believe. And 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 you need to be able to express it. That, that's the idea here. He says, give, and this, uh, give an account, and this is, through words you're to give a right response to the question asked. And you'll be ready to do it when asked. And he says, the content of what you're to say is the hope that is within you. Why the gospel is real. Hope could be equal to gospel in this, in this, in this usage. Uh, or it could be equal to the Christian faith. Both of those are the ideas of hope here. It motivates the believer to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. Uh, it, 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 why you know you will escape eternal punishment and enter into eternal glory. And examples of what he's saying here you find in Acts 6, uh, 26, 6, Ephesians 1, 18, 4 and 4, 4, Colossians 1, 23, and Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 10, 23, and a whole bunch of other places. Uh, but nevertheless, that's the idea. Hope is to be the main point of our explanation. That we provide regarding the uh, regarding our possibility and the possibility for them to be saved as well. That's that's the that's the whole focus. the the uh, it, the the the, me, the the talk is to be about hope, and then he says there's a means by which you express this hope. He goes on to say how you express this hope. He says you're to, you're to do it yet with gentleness and fear. Gentleness is the idea of meekness or humility, but it's not, to be, it's not expressed in weakness. This is not, not the idea here. It doesn't express the idea of being weak. It just expresses the, the idea of, of uh, not being the opposite of this would to be to be overbearing, uh, to be uh, condescending, uh, to be dismissing, uh, to be somewhat abusive toward the other individual. Uh, and I've seen people do that. You know, in other words, don't get the biggest, heaviest black Bible you got and hit them upside the head with it. That's you know that 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 doesn't work very good. Yeah. <clears throat> He says, he says, you're to do it with gentleness, Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. You're to do it with, with fear and or reverence. Uh, it has the idea of deep re, uh, devotion. Uh, and it, and it, you're sharing the truth of the gospel. And that should be expressed in, a, in, in reverence to the one whose gospel it is. That's, that's the idea he's expressing here. Uh, he, it's, it's to be respect for the person you're talking to. That kind of idea. It's 
utter respect and reverence for the person you're talking of and respecting the person you're talking to. That's, that's the idea he's wanting, wanting us to understand here. 2 Timothy 2. Verses 24 through 26. And the Lord's slave must be must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may give them repentance, leading to full knowledge of the truth, and they might come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That last verse says a lot. It says that they might come to their senses, first of all. You know, there's the implication in Scripture that those who are outside of Christ are a little bit insane. They don't have good sense. They come to their senses. They come to the realization of the truth. That's the idea here. And he goes on to say, and they escape the snare, the trap that the devil holds them in and causes them to do his will. Uh, They don't even realize they're not in control. You know that atheist that runs around saying, there is no God, I'm the master of my own fate, the captain of my own ship? He's trapped. Yes, sir. What, what verse was that you just quoted from? It's Second Timothy two, twenty-four to twenty-six, specifically verse twenty-six. Second oh, Timothy. Okay. Thank yeah. You. No problem. And then he says he goes on from that, and there's there's another one. He says in verse sixteen, and we're to have a good conscience. That's the other thing he comes up with. We're to have a good conscience. We're to keep our conscience clean. This means to be good or morally right. It doesn't mean sinless perfection, incidentally, but our aim is to maintain a clear conscience before God. The word keep equals maintain. It's another word for maintain. You're to do maintenance on your, on your conscience. The conscience isn't, the, uh, isn't perfect because it resides within a fallen individual, so you have to maintain it. You have to make, you have to make sure your accounts are short with God. You have to make sure that you have, you have examined your own life. Paul tells us that, to examine yourself. This is why when we have communion, we always have a time of prayer before, that you examine your life before you come to that table, so that you don't dishonor the one you came to honor. That, that's really the idea. And that's what, that's, what, that's what Peter is saying here. Maintain your conscience. Make sure it's clean. Uh, search it to see if there's any any <clears throat> any uh, any wrongdoing that you have not dealt with. See if there's any sin that is harboring in your life that you haven't come before God with. It'll help avoid willful dif- disobedience. Uh, throughout the day, 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 13, and 2 Corinthians uh, 5, 17, where 1 Corinthians 10, 13 basically tells us there's nothing, nothing, nothing that's overtaken us that isn't common to man, but with the temptation, there's no temptation that's overtaken us, but isn't common to man. But with the temptation, God provides a way of escape. So we can escape sin. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 uh, basically tells us that we are a new creation in Christ and all, th- all the old things have passed away. Everything has become new. You know, you might recite that verse to yourself every morning when you get up. 
I'm a new creation. Old things passed away. All things have become new. And then try to live that way. It's, it's to continue the practice of immediate repentance and prayer uh, for forgiveness when aware that sin has, uh, has taken hold. 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, He is righteous to forgive us from all sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the idea here. In other words, it's keep your account short. Keep yourself clear with God. Now, you should be doing that anyway, but it's especially important when you're called upon to defend the faith. He says, because they will slander you. This means to speak evil. It's verbal abuse, not physical. It means when they call you names, when they accuse you of things. It's when you run into that guy you knew before you were saved, and you remember, well, I remember when you did all this stuff. Well, how come you're like, you know, that, that kind of stuff, and wants to throw all the dirt in your face? Your conscience is clear before God, and you can give an honest testimony of how that change came about. That's, that's part of the idea here. It's a, that's just one simple example, but, but there's tons of ways this can happen. You watch it all the time. Uh, I, I see in the every once in a while I'll be reading something and I see some some comment somebody's made on a news report and, and it's an outward attack on Christians that has no basis. Well, it may have a basis in some knuckleheads, but you know for the most part it's not not a it's not it has no basis in true biblical Christianity. The, the slanders they're making it, it happens it happens constantly. Or he says to revile, that's to threaten or to insult. This is the, the ascent of the t- trying to intimidate. It's once again verbal. It's not that it's carried to the point of physical activity, but it's, it's the idea of threatening it is, is kind of the idea here. Uh, is there, there is, uh, there, it's the in-your-face kind of guy who wants to push it beyond limits. I think sometimes Christians are guilty of doing this in the other direction. Uh, uh, And we have to be careful of that. Peter says to maintain a a clear conscience. The the believer will be free of guilt from uh, the guilt of the world's criticism. Uh, Whatever they might throw at them, it simply won't stick. You're going to be Teflon. It doesn't say they won't throw the mud at you. It just says it can't stick. That's 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 the uh, that's the issue here, and ultimately our good behavior in Christ will put them to shame. One of the great examples of this it's it's an Old Testament example. It's a very Old Testament example. It's Genesis forty two eight through twenty one. I'm not going to read the whole text. I'll just kind of summarize it. What is happening in this in this text is, of course, prior to this, Joseph's brothers who are jealous of him. He may have been a little bit arrogant, but nevertheless, because they were jealous of him, uh, they were going to kill him. Uh, they decided that wasn't a good idea, so they sold him into slavery, and Joseph winds up in Egypt. And through all kinds of trials and testing, Joseph winds up the second most powerful man on the face of the earth. He basically becomes prime minister of the world, in a, in a sense. And it's during a time of great worldwide famine, and Joseph, because of his managerial skills, has put put, excuse me, Egypt in the position of uh, being recession-proof, I guess you could say. Uh, and and, and uh, as a result, he is a guy in control of the world food supply. 
I mean, basically, Farrell went and played golf once he got Joseph in place. <laughs> so he's 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 uh, he's in a, this position, and and the rest of the world is suffering. And Abram sends ten of his remaining sons to Egypt, not knowing they are going to see Joseph, just knowing they're going to see the second in command of Egypt, to ask for food. Joseph knows who they are the day they walk in the door. They don't recognize him because he looks like an Egyptian. And so they, they have this interchange in which Joseph is not nice to them at all. He, he puts them to a test to find out just who these guys are today. The last members he had of them, they threw him in a well and sold him to slavers. So he's, he's testing them. They haven't brought Benjamin and Benjamin is mentioned, and of course Benjamin is Joseph's only full brother. The rest are all half-brothers. And he says, and, and in the course of all of this, he tells them, he tells them, listen, here's the deal. I don't know if I can trust you guys or not, because I think you just came to spy on us, and I, I think you're just spies. And there are, no, 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 you know. And so he says, well, and here's what you're going to do. You're going to leave one of your brothers behind. You're going to go back to your father, and you're going to bring, I'll give you some food, and you're going to come back with your youngest brother. Then I'll believe you. And then we'll take care of you. And as a conclusion to this, Simon, who was the one who was uh, uh, against uh, the whole thing in the first place, says, Surely we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, the stress has become upon us. In other words, what what he is saying here is the shame we face is our own doing because of the way we treated our brother. Joseph, of course, hears all this, understand, because then it goes on, the rest of them acknowledge this and repent, uh, ultimately, is what is going on there. And Joseph's kind of hiding behind the curtain and hears it all. And so he, he, he recognizes that these are changed men. But that's that's the idea here that that Paul that Peter excuse me Peter's expressing in this contents your good conduct will put to shame. These guys have been put to shame because of their bad conduct. Now faced now being faced with it is the idea. And then he says finally in verse seventeen. He says this for it is better. If God will uh, wills it so that you suffer for going, doing good rather than for doing wrong. I don't think we have to say a whole lot about doing wrong. Uh, we kind of understand that crime should be punished, uh, that wrongdoing should be punished. Uh, even if, uh, you know, why do parents discipline their children? Because we want them to behave properly you know, and conduct themselves properly. They'll grow up and be steady citizens who will be productive and, and, and good, good in life. Uh, however, uh, when someone does evil, uh, often, not well in our climate today, maybe not so much, but uh, uh, at one time, they did suffer for the wrongdoing. There's an old saying, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. You know that that's that's the idea here, is that wrongdoers wrongdoers are to uh, uh, um, wrongdoers face the consequences of their wrongdoing, and so he goes on and he says, but by contrast, you don't want to be in that group. It's better if God should will that you suffer for doing good rather than for doing wrong. In other words, don't be in the wrongdoer group. 
That's not where believers need to be. But he says, if God should will. Once again, this is the same verb usage from verse uh, from verse 14, where he says, the possibility rather than the norm, the possibility is God might will that you that you face suffering. And God might will that. Uh, if so, it's for his purposes and his causes. And he says, he says, but if God should will it so, it's once again a po- possibility. A, 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 a Christian can and do suffer unjustly. Note, 20, uh, note back in verse chapter uh, chapter two, verse twenty, the second half of verse twenty. But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. You f- this finds favor with God. Uh, Paul uh, Peter addressed that issue there, and in in three fourteen, he's already said. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Uh, those those ideas have already come up. So you may suffer unjustly. Uh, tw- verse twelve of chapter two <coughs> noted. By keeping your contact excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things which they slander you as an evildoer, they may, because of your good works, and as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, suffering can be used to bring others to Christ. That is a means by which, which when they view what is going on here, they 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 see this as an They see this as something missing in their life. Uh, that they couldn't stand this, but how can he? It's because of his God. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, the wives are told, in the same way you wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of the wives as they observe your pure conduct with fear. In other words, once again, here is a testimony that conduct of a believer, godly conduct of a believer, is a means, even under dire circumstances, that can bring others to Christ. That's, 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 the, that's the idea that he's wanting us to understand here. If by God's will, these things might happen. Because they point to Christ, 318, uh, the next verse that we're going to look at, the next section. For Christ also suffered for sin once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God, having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. Once again, how did we come to God? Because of what Christ did. We might have to suffer that others might recognize him. That's, that's pretty much what, what Peter is saying here. That's what he's telling us. However, this text also points to the day of judgment, chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be put to shame, but he is to glorify God in his name. For it is the time of judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it brings with, and it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So it points to eternity, and it points to a time of, of judgment. It points to the book of Revelation, if you will. It points to that time of, of, of God balancing the scales of justice and pouring out his wrath 
on a Christ-rejecting world. That's, that's what he's pointing here. And he's basically what he's saying here is we now have the opportunity to testify for Christ and, and have a part in bringing those to him. That's, that's, the, that's the idea he's wanting to, to express. J. Ramsey Michaels, in his commentary, wrote this on, on this part of the verse. He said, Christians may be called to suffer and die under the judgment of a pagan court. But they have the hope of being vindicated when the tables are turned and injustice of the human tribunal gives way to the perfect justice of God's tribunal. Well, we got done a little bit early today, but at any rate, uh, are there any comments or questions this morning? It's not an easy subject, and it gets worse as we go along. But anyway... Yes. Um, I've heard it taught too in verse 15 that you're not giving a defense of Christ. Like he doesn't need to be defended. No. Defending the hope inside of you. Yeah, which which is equal to your basically. If you look at if you look at Paul's examples, it's gospel presentation. Mm-hmm. That's that's what it means. Well, yeah, you're not. Don't get caught up today in you know the endless debates on. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. How could a how could a just and holy God allow suffering? You know, or how, how can this, you know, they'll, they'll, or they want to defer to something else. They always defer. I've been caught in that where they defer you to something else, you know. Uh, I've been caught in that trap trying to talk to my brother who thinks his good works are going to save him. But it won't. It won't. You just, yeah, you're right. Exactly right. It's not, you're not defending Jesus. You're defending you're defending your belief in the gospel. You're giving your... Basically, the, basically, what you have to be ready to do is give your testimony. How did you get saved? That's, that's basically, uh, basically what it's calling you to do. Yes? This might be a nuanced question, but I'll hear a lot of people saying, like, oh, I'm suffering right now in America. Mm-hmm. What do we see as actions? What do we see as somebody's consequences? Yeah, consequences or um, just a hard day. You know, because a lot of people will just have a hard day and be like, I'm just suffering. Yeah, well, there are people who are always looking for pity. Yeah. You know, and and unfortunately, there are Christians who are that way, and they equate suffering to I stub my toe, you know, yeah. which basically is okay. You're clumsy, um, you know. I, well, ask my toes. I I beat them up on our bedroom furniture every night. Uh, but uh, uh, Kathy goes, what happened? I kicked the 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 dresser, you know. But but at any rate, that's just clumsiness, you know. Uh, and and then we'll say. We'll say, and of course, people do suffer under this. We'll say disease. Well, that's that's a consequence that we live in a fallen world and we're still in a fallen body. And yes, that is suffering, but it's not suffering in this context. This context is talking about external suffering, uh, suffering that's being brought on to you by others and or governments or whatever powers that be. It's that kind of suffering. Uh, that 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 you're facing, <clears throat> and it may take on different forms that may lead to obviously to physical suffering. I mean, I'm sure. Uh, look at Paul's list, you know, of all the things that he went through, and 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 sometimes the physical things that we face 
as that could be classified as suffering are from the hands of God to correct us. Paul, I mean, he had the thorn in the flesh, and he prayed and prayed for it to go away, and ultimately God revealed to him, no, it's staying to make you stronger so that you understand that you have to rely on my strength, not yours. You know, so there are those kinds of things. This text and what Peter is talking about is 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 human, i.e., devil uh, inspired, direct warfare against you and against against the cause of Christ. That's that's really the idea here. So yeah, there's a separation. There are people who say they're suffering and yeah, they're they're not suffering for the cause of Christ. They're suffering because they're clumsy or they haven't taken care of themselves or some illness came upon them that God has purpose for, but nevertheless, you know, it's it's different. You know, it's different from 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 basically the US Congress tomorrow votes that Christianity is an illegal religion and they are to be impounded and executed which is what the Roman government did so that's a little different and that's that's really the idea here is that hasn't happened yet and the suffering they're facing is mild compared to what they're going to face but but uh, um, um, what am I trying to say here uh, but that uh, it's from non-believers attacking you, and how you're to how you're to handle yourself in light of that, and it's basically you're to be ready to to give a defense for the hope that is within you, and that hope basically equals a gospel presentation. That's that's where he says we're to fix our that's where we're to fix our conversation on the hopes within us, and I think the best place to go is look at Paul before Agrippa before. Uh, the various, I can't even remember their names now, but it begins the various people that he had to testify. And, and it is implied, since he applied to Caesar, he may have actually testified before Nero. We don't know. That's, we don't have an account of that. But he could have actually testified before Nero, which means before Nero went completely off his rocker and nuts, he heard the gospel and he rejected it. So, at any rate, does that kind of answer your question? Long way around the train there, but anyway. <laughs> Anyway, let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we come before you this morning and we thank you. We, <clears throat> we thank you for your grace, for your love and your mercy that you've expressed to us through your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that in your, in your sovereign will, you and your grace chose to save us. And Father, may we, uh, may we be obedient, respondent servants. And may we take the words of your, of your, may we take your word truly to heart. And, and as we look at this one, no matter what we face, we would be ready to express the hope that was in us, no matter what the circumstance we find ourselves. That ultimately, your name would be glorified and others might come to Christ. And we thank you in his name. Amen.